Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you'd make what we just sang from our lips true of our hearts. That we would confess with, with, with deep honesty and, and true confession of our need of you. Confess that we don't always fully believe that. That even now as we've gotten ourselves ready for our day and checked off our boxes and tidied ourselves up and put ourselves together and are going on about our lives uh, it's easy to say we need you and then live as if we don't. And so we ask, I ask you to help us, help me, help us to believe more fully what we just sang with our lips. And would you meet us in our place of need, speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, encourage us, teach us, and build us up through your word, even this morning. We thank you for the privilege to gather here like this. Would you be pleased from what you hear and see and receive in worship from your people this morning? We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. Good morning. I thank you guys for, for leading us today. Um, before we get started, I want to take a moment and highlight just a couple of things um, that I feel are worthwhile to focus on for a moment. Uh, last week, because of the weather, um, our brothers and sisters at, at Grace City couldn't worship where they normally worship at the high school in West Fargo, and say they joined, so they joined us at 9 and 11, and it was, it was awesome to worship together. It was a sweet time. This morning at 9 o'clock, uh, while, we, while we were starting our first service, um, some friends of ours, um, Hope Community Church, built out of, uh, in Minneapolis, part of the X-29 Network, were part of, launched out a, a new congregation, a new church uh, Hope Community Church in Columbia Heights, if you're familiar with the Twin Cities area. Um, good friends of ours, uh, Drew Zelke and his wife Kelly, um, assessed through Acts 29 to give leadership to that church plant. And they launched this morning, uh, which is awesome. Um, I, uh, you may or may not know, we've talked about it a little bit, but um, Disciples Church launched in Mandan in early December. They got actually bumped back a week because of weather that happened in, at the end of, of November, but... Um, Jamie Hamblin and his wife uh, launched out from Century Baptist in Bismarck into the city of Mandan. And if you're familiar with Mandan, Bismarck area, it's kind of like Fargo-Moorhead, where they get along, sort of. Um, the cities kind of like each other. And so um, the gospel is at work and expanding into parts of Mandan. And this week I had a phone uh, conversation with another guy um, at Century in Bismarck who's preparing a, a plan and building a team of people to church plant in Bismarck. Um, so Century's kind of doing this twice. And I, and I tell you all these things because I want to keep these reminders of the expansion of the gospel and the planting of churches in front of us so we can, one, through prayer and support, lock arms with these brothers and sisters in our area and in our city and in our state and around the region and the globe. And so it helps us keep our focus on the work that we're called to. We're being called as gospel ambassadors here in this city, in this place. And so as the gospel is proclaimed that the lost might be found, that the spiritually blind will see and be healed, and that many might come to faith in Jesus. And that's what we're all about. So as you think of these churches and as we uh, put these partnerships and these people in front of us, um, not just in church planning but other missions partners, that we might pray for them, that God might use them mightily to invade the places 
uh, that are in bondage to the kingdom of darkness in their cities with the light of Christ. And as uh, our brother and uh, the church planting, uh, kind of the director of Acts 29 for the Upper Midwest, Steve Treichler at Hope, he says, to go into the kingdom of darkness and trash the joint for the glory of God. Amen? And so we want to keep these things in front of you. And so as you think about it, please pray for these friends and these partners in ministry. So let's continue our series in Luke's gospel. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone from our strike team will put one in your hand. Um, And we'll be in Luke chapter 3 today. Ethan, I'm still getting a little bit of a hum. Depending on how excited I get up here, it might get worse. I don't know. Um, Maybe it's just me. Maybe you can't hear it, but, but I can. So sorry about that. We're starting in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 38. Now, Luke is writing, if you remember, to an audience of Gentiles. Luke's audience is not uh, primarily ethnically Jewish, and he's trying to help them understand how this obscure Jewish man from Galilee really is the Son of God. That this Savior that the Jews have been waiting for, for their entire existence as a people, isn't just the Savior of that single people, but is in fact, he has come as the Savior of the whole world. That's part of what Luke is trying to, to do, is to help his readers understand that Jesus has come as a Savior for the entire world. We'll pick it up in verse 21 of chapter 3, and we'll read till the end. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now, verse 21, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Verse 23, Jesus When he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsai, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosem, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Melsa, the son of Mena the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Finally, a name I know. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Naor, the son of Seru, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxid, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, 
the Son of God. Now, as we say often when we read our passage, this is the word of the Lord for us. And if you're like me, you get to passages in Scripture like this, and you read verse 21 and 22, with whom I am well pleased. And then you skip over verses 23 to 38 and start in on chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, right? But we can't do that. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of questions for Luke here as I was reading this. Why only two verses about this remarkable event of Jesus' baptism, which the other gospel writers also give an account of? Only two verses. He doesn't give a lot of detail. And then... 16 verses of a list of names right here at this part of the story. Why did we read last week about the end, basically the end of John's ministry? He preached the gospel of repentance or the, the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and that got him thrown in prison, period. And Luke goes, and by the way, he also baptized Jesus. So why the back and forth? And why is this genealogy here and not at the beginning of the book of Luke like Matthew's? genealogy is. And what are we supposed to take away from these 16 verses full of names that I may or may not have pronounced correctly, but you don't know any better? Um, I was told, just say them with confidence and everyone will be fine. So there you go. Some of you are like, I know he mispronounced this one or that one. If you, you can email devin at rivercityfargo.org. <laughs> Tell Devin that Jake mispronounced them. No, it's fine. But what are we supposed to learn from these 16 verses in Jesus' human family tree? See, one of the reasons we're studying Luke is because Jesus' mission is so clear in Luke's gospel. He's coming to save sinners. He is legitimately seeking out those who are lost to invite them with him, to invite them into the kingdom of God. And this is good news for us because it's a reminder for us that like the hymn, Amazing Grace, I was once lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I... See, we can participate. It's good. Just shake off that old German and Scandinavian heritage a little. Right? It's good to consider and remember that reality. And it's good to consider our purpose then as followers of Jesus. That if this is Jesus' mission and he's called us as his disciples, then we too join him on his mission to go to others who are lost, who are in need of finding, who are hurting, in need of healing. Jesus works through his church and by his spirit to bring many sons and daughters into the kingdom. So what I hope we can see in this passage over just these next few minutes is that the eternal, uncreated Son of God is humbling himself and identifying with us, humans, sinful and needy, frail and broken, so that he might save us. And that we'll see how that isn't just generically for humanity, but it's personal for each of us. So this is what I hope we find when we look at this passage or the framework that we're looking at it in. As the Son of Man, Jesus enters into our humanity to redeem us, and as the Son of God, Jesus has the power to restore what's been broken. And I think we see this both in the genealogy and in the baptism. So let's look at the first part together, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you 
I am well pleased. See, all through Luke's gospel so far, we've seen this back and forth between John and Jesus, or at least the stories about them. We read about the the miraculous conception of John the Baptist to old and infertile parents. And then we read about the more miraculous conception of Jesus to a virgin. We we read the prophecy about how John's going to be great before God and is going to do mighty things in ushering in the coming Messiah. And then we read the prophecy of Jesus given to Mary and then through Anna and Simeon of the greater ministry that Jesus has compared to John's. And then we see the celebration around the birth of John, the family and the the people gathering together and friends to celebrate this miraculous thing and Zechariah finally gets to speak again and everything's great. And then we read, and we read at Christmas, the amazingly better and greater celebration of the birth of Christ that involved not just uh, random shepherds on a nearby hillside, but a host of angels lighting up the night sky to sing glory to God. The greater celebration. The ministry of John was one who would prepare the way, and Jesus was that greater one to come to show the way. He was the promised Messiah. And and Luke goes so far as to essentially wrap up John's ministry in verses 18 through 20, like we said, and he kind of closes it up and says, and uh, John said some stuff to Herod that got him in trouble because he told him to repent because he was living in sin and Herod didn't like that and threw him in prison. And by the way, Jesus also was baptized by John. It's kind of how Luke frames it. And I think in part Luke is reminding us that although John and Jesus are connected, to not make more of the connection than is necessary. I'm a big fan of Venn diagrams. I like it when you take one thing, you take another thing, and you find out where they overlap. Right, Venn diagram, you with me? Uh, different color in the middle, right? It's a very great visual aid for people like me. And I think what, what part of what Luke's doing here is say, there's a Venn diagram, there's a connection point between John and Jesus, but let's not make more of it than what it is. It's really about Jesus. Even all the good things about John are kind of pointing to the better that is Jesus. See, and, and even here, John's baptism, all the people that were being baptized by John were being baptized for repentance. They were being called to repent. It was for those who recognized that they were sinners, that they had a problem, they were in need of a Savior. And that's why Jesus' baptism is significant. But not because what it says about John's ministry, but what it says about Jesus' ministry. See, Luke doesn't go into all the other details that some of the other gospel writers do, and I'd encourage you to go read Matthew's account and, uh, and just to see the, the side-by-side comparison. But Luke tells us that sometime after John had been baptizing a while, he uses the, you know, when all others had been baptized, that not that necessarily every other person, that no one ever got baptized again afterwards, but what he's saying is that this has been going on for a while. John's ministry is well known. And after many had already been baptized, Jesus too comes to John, steps down into the waters of the Jordan to be baptized. And this is significant because remember, John was calling men and women to repent of their sins, commit themselves to following God. And Jesus, as we already know, had no sin to repent of. If there was one person who didn't need to be baptized, it was Jesus. John says so as much in the other gospel accounts, like, wait a minute here. You should be baptizing me. We, this is not how this should go. And Jesus says, no, 
it's right that you baptize me. See, going under the water was a picture of God's judgment. It was aligning ourselves or aligning yourself, if you were being baptized by John, of the just punishment for your sin to be paid, the judgment of God. And then coming up out of the water was the reality of the the life, in this case with John, of the commitment we now live to follow him. But what judgment should fall upon Jesus? He had no sin to be baptized for, to repent of. And that's our first discovery, I think, from this passage, that Jesus identifies with sinners. Only sinners need forgiveness. Only sinners need to repent. Only sinners need to be baptized in this case, according to John. And we understand that when we talk about the cross, right? In a few weeks, we come, we'll get closer and closer to Easter. And I say a few weeks because I want winter to be over. And, um, we, but we think about that when we get to the cross, it's easy for us to see the exchange. We, we sing the songs and we recognize my sin on him on the cross. We, we see the exchange. Christ the perfect one exchanging his perfection for my imperfection. His righteousness for my unrighteousness. His death for my life. The thief on the cross says as much. We've broken up Luke into, into five years of sermons basically, um, every spring taking on another chunk of Luke. So we won't get to Luke 23 unless the Lord uh, returns before, him, before then, like sometime in 2024 or something. But let's just say, um, we'll jump ahead here a second. In Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross and there's thieves on either side of him. One of them says, if you really are the Son of God, just get us down from here. And the other thief says, are, are you crazy? We deserve this. <laughs> We did the bad things. This is our punishment. But this Jesus guy, he's, he's innocent. He gets it. There's nothing that Jesus deserves. He doesn't deserve what he's getting. And he leans to Jesus and says, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is beautiful. Today you will be with me in paradise. He gets it. We get it. We see the exchange on the cross. But that exchange on the cross started long before the cross. It started before Jesus was arrested, before he ate the Passover meal with his disciples, before he healed one pair of blind eyes or made one pair of legs walk again. It started when he was born. He wrapped himself in human flesh. The glorious and eternal Son of God humbled himself by taking on a human nature and being born a poor virgin and living in virtual obscurity in the backwater town of Nazareth for 30 years. And his ministry, his purpose and coming was initiated here in the waters of baptism. Jesus, who had already humbled himself by becoming man, was intentionally identifying with sinners. He was willingly being counted among sinners. Think about that for a second. It started here. I'm willing, the perfect and eternal Son of God, fully God, fully man, Glorious and righteous, I'm willing to be associated with sinners. And it starts here in baptism. As Mitch preached two weeks ago, we should be careful not to miss this full humanity of Jesus. Humanity is in need of redemption. Humanity is broken. And Jesus is going all the way to wrap himself, not just in human flesh, but in all of our human conditions so that he might redeem this broken humanity. And then Luke moves quickly. At the end of verse 21, tells us um, that sometime during the baptism, uh, Jesus was praying. 
Luke's the only one who highlights the fact that Jesus was praying here. And Luke does that a lot in his gospel, as we'll read as we, as we go. Often, Luke highlights where Jesus pulled away to pray, or Jesus stepped away from the crowds, or Jesus is found by others. And what is he doing? He's praying. There's this beautiful picture of Jesus, according to his humanity, dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful, beautiful picture. And Luke tells us the heavens were opened, and I can't imagine what that would have been like, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form, basically telling us other people can see this. This isn't just a vision one or two guys had and they wrote it down. It's one guy turning to the next. Are you seeing this kind of mentality? And then a voice sounded from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Now a couple things. One, um, while you won't find the word Trinity in the index of your Bibles, this is a place where we see, as God has revealed himself, as one God in three distinct persons. God the Son in the water. God the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form like a dove. And the voice of God the Father who dwells in unapproachable light coming down through this crack somehow in the heavens to speak. So that's cool. Two, what's happening here is the inauguration, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's a blessing from God the Father for Jesus to begin the work he set out to do. Jesus' ministry starts with baptism and ends with death and resurrection. He goes down into the water, which is representative of God's judgment, and comes up out of the water, representing a life dedicated to righteousness. And his ministry ends with him going down into the grave, bearing the penalty for sin, and ends with him coming up from the grave, putting all of sin and death and hell and Satan under his feet forever. So Jesus identifies with sinners in order to save sinners. See, his ministry was to seek and save the lost. And from here, and here from heaven, God the Father is pleased to exalt Jesus, to call him his delight and his son. And it echoes the words of Isaiah 42. The prophet Isaiah says this in verse 1 of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The Father is blessing the public ministry of Jesus the Son and sealing that blessing with the Holy Spirit. That's cool. And then, to top it off, Luke gives us a family tree. Now, I'm not going to read it again. You can listen to the audio later if you want to hear it a second time. But the questions we asked earlier, why this genealogy and why here in the story? And why is it different from Matthew's genealogy? And what can we learn from this? We're going to try to answer these because it's connected to what the Father just said about Jesus being his beloved son. So one thing, um, as we look, uh, the, the co- there's a common matching up of the genealogy here in Luke with Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And they're different um, if you want this week to pull out two different Bibles and um, you know, pull, have Matthew 1 open over here and, and Luke 3 open over here and kind of start to read them, you'll see very, very cl- clearly and very quickly how much they don't line up. 
Here's a couple of the ways in which they're different. Uh, the order. Matthew starts in, talks about Jesus being the son of David from the line of David, who was from the line of Abraham. And then Matthew starts with Abraham and works his way through David to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus and works his way backwards through David and Abraham and all the way back to Adam. So the order is different. One working from Abraham to Jesus and one working from Jesus back to Adam. On top of that, the most significant difference is that the names are different. In fact, we see almost none of the same names between shared ones like David and Abraham. We get to a few we're like, oh, hey, I know that one. Awesome. Great. And that's the big one, and we'll talk about that. And another difference is the scope. Matthew goes to Abraham. That's important. Highlighting Abraham and David in particular. And like we said, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Now, the order from one end to the other isn't really the problem. You can count from 1 to 10 or 10 to 1. Either way, you're highlighting all 10 numbers, right? But the names and the scope, I think, are the more important questions. And often, this is used as a criticism for inconsistency in the Bible or, or overly confusing things. But it's, but it's fascinating because we do the same thing. Maybe you don't think about it. If you're, uh, I was talking to uh, a guy earlier today. If you're going to a job interview and the interviewer asks you, tell me about your family, you're going to tell a version of your family history to your job interviewer. Maybe where you grew up, things you learned, places you studied, fam favorite family vacation, some funny anecdote to get their attention, maybe they'll hire you. If you're talking to a therapist and they say, tell me about your family, you might tell a slightly different story because your objective is different. You're going to give different details there. So we do this. And I think Matthew and Luke are doing that. Their objectives are a little different. And scholars are split on, on some of the reasons, but a few things we know which help us. Matthew's audience, as we said before, is Jewish. And so a connection of Jesus the Messiah to the covenant promises given to Abraham and the kingly promises of David's line, someone from David's throne or uh, line will rule on the throne forever, are very important to Jewish writers so that they, or readers so they understand who is this Jesus and why is he important. He is the covenant fulfillment given to Abraham. And he is the king who will sit on the throne of his father David forever. So Matthew wants to make that very clear. In fact, Matthew skips a few names in there. If you go back through the actual like father-son relationships, he's hitting the highlights. He doesn't highlight the weird uncle and the, you know, the guy no one wants to talk about from the family tree. Um, he orders it properly so that you, you can see, as the writers can see, the highlights which connect Abraham to David to Jesus because it's all about their family heritage. Luke's audience is Gentiles. They have no personal connection to the covenant promises made to Abraham. And so, at least not at first glance, and so biblical scholars have said, well, here's a couple reasons why Luke's might be different, and there's two. One is that Luke might be following the family line of Mary. She was also from the line of David, and so perhaps Luke is following Mary's line. That would have been um, a little um, obscure and kind of unheard of in an ancient Near East culture to follow the family line of the mother, but it's possible Luke highlights a lot of Mary's involvement here at the beginning, so it's, so it's possible. And Luke even says, uh, 
Jesus was the son of Joseph, like as was supposed, basically making note, like we know he was born of a virgin. I told you that a couple chapters ago. So it's possible that Heli was the father of Mary. And Luke, to emphasize the role of Mary in the life of Jesus, traces Jesus' biological line back through her to David where it converges with the other list. That's an option. The other is that Luke is following a biological line while Matthew is following more of a royal line. See, we as Americans have this bizarre fascination with the British royal family. It's funny. Go to the grocery store and just take a, a... a passing glance at the stupid magazines that sit by the overpriced soda pop and gum. How many of them have like Prince Harry on it right now? All of them. Who cares, right? We have this weird fascination. But part of the fascination we have is because we don't have a monarchy. We dealt with monarchy in 1776, right? Like, <laughs> I actually got a similar woo last time too. Someone should um, some check on those guys. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's like, that's not our, we don't have a context for that. And so we're fascinated by this, um, by this you know, royal family thing culturally, which is kind of weird. But we miss some things. We don't understand monarchies. For example, Matthew is tracing the line. You'll notice he says the son of David was Solomon. That's what Matthew kind of makes the connection to, which is true. Solomon was king. Luke uses the name Nathan, a different son of David who, as far as we know, never took the throne. So what are we to make of this? See, they could both be accurate. They're both from the line of David. Because here's how it works. Here's your brief primer on monarchies. Solomon has a son. The moment Solomon has a son, that son is heir to the throne. Nathan, second son, all of a sudden, out. Not even a chance. If Solomon never has a son and then something, you know, Shakespearean would happen to him and he should die, maybe the other son gets to go in there. But the reality is the moment Solomon has a son, Nathan becomes a secondary line and any other brothers he might have. But somewhere down the line, it's possible that one of Solomon's descendants failed to have a son. And so the royal line would then move over to the line of the next available male heir, which could have been Nathan's line. So one might be following the royal line as is listed in Kings, and one might be following the biological line that works its way back to David. So while the crown may have passed to Solomon eventually, it may have ended up on the the head of a descendant of Nathan. Either way, it helps us with the supposed problem of inconsistency in the text. Genealogies, depending on their purpose, do this sort of thing. So they're not the same, but they're not necessarily trying to be the same. So which one of those two options is more likely? Quite frankly, I don't care. I tend to lean toward the second one, but at the end of the day, I don't think it matters. So you can wrestle with that. I'll post some resources that I think are helpful. You can... You can, you can uh, Look those up and make a decision for yourself. I don't think it's worth splitting hairs over. I think the, the more important thing about the genealogy, more so than the order, more so than the names, is actually the scope. It's the fact that Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And the reason that he puts it right here, between his baptism and what we'll read next week in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. 
See, Luke is helping us see that Jesus is identifying with us, with our human condition, by going down into the waters of baptism and is reminding us of how we, humans, got into this problem of sin and our need of redemption in the first place. He goes back to the beginning. (laughs) Jesus came as a son of man, as a son of Adam, to restore what the first Adam lost. So when, when Luke says, Adam, a son of God, he's speaking of the unique created position of Adam. And in the waters of baptism, when the voice from heaven says, this is my son, that one I'm not pleased with, this one I'm pleased with. It's okay, it's funny. (laughs) So we find ourselves needing Jesus under Adam. And in Christ, we find ourselves now under the beloved son. See, the only thing, if you, if you go back um, to Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam in his own image, unique among creation. And the only thing not good about God's creation of Adam was that he was alone. And all the men in the room said, amen. And so God made Eve. <laughs> Thank you for following me there, some of you. God made Eve from Adam's side. And together, they more fully imaged God. And at the end of that day, God said it was very good. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve tempted by Satan. And we'll see the parallels next week in the temptation of Jesus. They were enticed. The lust of the flesh, they desired this thing that they know they should not have. They, it looked good to their eyes. Their eyes were deceived. And they said, well, it looked good And pride took over and they said, we're going to take hold of this even though we're not supposed to. And they failed. They failed. And I think Luke puts this genealogy here, tracing Jesus back to Adam to highlight that Jesus, who identifies with sinners by being baptized himself for repentance, is being commissioned by God the Father for this work. This one who can trace his humanity all the way back to the place where it went wrong, is coming to right all those wrongs. Where Adam failed, Jesus will not fail. And this is for all the people who are cursed under Adam. And that's you. And that's me. This is where the gospel kind of starts to spring up from the ground in Luke. Jesus came for sinners, and that's you and me. Not to condemn us, but to condemn the sin and redeem us. And he didn't just come to redeem humanity generically. But he came to redeem you. You. You are the one it lost in need of finding. He's called you from death to life. He's granted you forgiveness. He's brought healing and has set you forward with, with purpose to share the hope you have with others. Does that resonate with you? Or do you, like me, tend to default to the, just the generic redemption of Jesus but struggle to see it personally, real time, every day? How might you see yourself differently if you no longer traced your spiritual family tree to Adam and your condition of being broken but instead traced your spiritual line to Jesus, the Redeemer? No longer under the curse of Adam but under the blessing of Christ. 
So that in Christ, by faith, when the Father says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, we recognize that despite of our frailties and our sin, we are wrapped up underneath that. And so the Father, looking at Christ, looks at you and says, I'm pleased with you because of Christ. (laughs) See, that's the heart of Jesus' ministry. When he's tempted by Satan in chapter 4, which we'll read next week, when he overcomes that temptation... When we see him call out to a bunch of random, unexpected, nobody fishermen and tells them to leave what they're doing and come and follow him, that he's going to literally reorient the rest of their lives. When he preaches to anyone who will listen that the kingdom of God is near. When he heals many and proclaims blessing on the poor and the needy. When he humbles himself to death on a cross. Maybe we can remember that we are wrapped up in all that is Christ's life. Jesus identifies with us in order to save us. He identifies with you in order to save you. So in just a moment, we're going to keep singing. And there's this wondrous mystery that Christ took on flesh to ransom us. That although there was not a trace of stain or sin in him, that he's the true and better Adam. And in our place, ruined sinners that we are, he hung on a cross to secure our redemption. Like victory for us is his death. And unable to be held by the grave, he rose again. And we who believe in Christ take hold of the life of Christ by faith. That we are delivered from the domain of darkness. And we hold on to the promise of full deliverance yet to come. That that is true for us now. In our failings and in our frailty and in our weakness. We have been delivered. We, are, uh, we live in a new kingdom. And we know that that will be like the doors will be blown off our understanding of that kingdom in the life to come. That's what's being inaugurated here as Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism. He has already stepped into humanity and now he's showing us how he's identifying with us so that he might save us. This is him ushering in redemption and it starts here with him saying, I'm identifying with you so that you might be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that at the right time, when we were still lost and blind and enemies, at the right time, you came to save those who were not seeking you. That you confound our own wisdom. That you... You do what seems foolish in our eyes, taking the spot of lowliness and humility in order to bring about glory in yourself that we can't even comprehend. Would you encourage our hearts, even now, to see with fresh eyes the the beauty of your salvation? Would you remind us that we were once blind and now 
by your grace and your mercy we can see. Would you encourage our hearts as we come to the table that this expression of praise as we partake in the bread and the cup would be a powerful, shared, and personal declaration of worship that Christ has died for me. We are no longer under the the weight and the bondage and the curse of Adam. But we can live free and redeemed under the blessing of Jesus. Help us as we come to the table, as we continue in song, to worship you, not just with our lips, but with our our whole heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.